Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And this intro theme you're hearing is by our talented guest today, John Brantingham. John runs a successful blog called Art of Composing, and I really enjoyed talking to him, so I want to get right to it because it's a longer episode. But first, I just have a couple quick announcements. I just posted the latest quest, which is to write Halloween music for the Twin Cities Trio, bassoon, clarinet, and oboe. Find out more about how you can submit your music at composerquest.com quest11. Next, I want to thank one of my newest patrons, Jerry Meyer. Jerry's a young composer out in Pennsylvania who found the show and contacted me. And he also submitted a piece for the latest quest, which is what you're hearing right now. It's called On an Autumn Breeze. Jerry has a Bandcamp page if you want to check out more of his music. It's g-e-r-r-y-m-a-y-e-r.bandcamp.com. Thanks again, Jerry. And for any of you thinking about becoming patrons, just go to patreon.com slash charlie to learn more. Thanks for considering it. Now, time to get on to my talk with John Brantingham. And I have to warn you, it gets a little music theory heavy, but hopefully with the audio examples I put in, you'll be able to glean something from it, even if you're not a theory geek like John and I. Well, John, thank you so much for being on Composer Quest here. It's my pleasure. I've been um, checking out your podcast and your blog, Art of Composing, and I, it is one of the best blogs out there, I think. Um, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. And um, I think you're acting like a composer coach to a lot of people. Uh, it seems like, anyways. Yeah. I guess it's uh, it's kind of strange to feel like I'm in that position, although I guess that's the point of the website. But I feel like I'm still learning so much that... When people ask me questions, I always get nervous, like, oh my gosh, am I going to know the answer to this one? <laughs> yeah, that's good, though. Keeps you on your toes. Yeah, it does. Well, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into composing and what you've been up to recently. Okay, yeah. Um, I've been composing really my whole life since I was about 12 years old or so. I mean, it started real simple. You know, I had to write a jazz solo for this little, like, quintet thing that I was playing with. And um, from there, I just started writing little jazz pieces. I uh, I kind of, on the side, started transcribing music just because I wanted to know how it worked and, and what was going on. And that kind of led me into doing bigger, more substantial compositions, uh, which I started doing in high school. And then I decided I want to go to college for music and you know, really love doing music theory and, and everything. But my sophomore year, I switched to a history major because I was also getting ready to go to the Army. So I was doing ROTC and music. They just didn't quite match up, and Army was paying the bills, so I didn't want to give that up. Um, after college, I spent seven years in the Army, and I got out in 2012 and moved out to California basically with the intent of going back to music as a career and that's that's what I've been chasing for the last few years that's cool yeah how did it feel going back into it after not studying music theory for a while 
Yeah, it was it was shocking how much I had forgotten. I, you know, every time I would, well, basically the story was I was uh, I was about a year from getting out of the army, and I knew I wanted to get out, and I, I don't know, I I just felt like it or or what kind of pushed me in the direction, but I decided to just write a jazz tune. I hadn't written, I hadn't really composed anything in years, so I sat down and did it, and I remembered how much I enjoyed the process. So I did a couple more. And then it was shortly after that that I decided to create the website, artofcomposing.com. And uh, kind of part of that website, I, I was going up to Baylor University and reading a bunch of music theory books and anything I could find. And I just was shocked how much theory there was that I either had never been told in college or I had completely forgotten or, you know, they told me and I just, it just didn't sink in. But um, I, I don't know. I love theory. I'm kind of a theory nerd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can. I think anyone who um, checks out your website would know that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know theory. I think it gets like a bad rap from people, especially people who go to college and have to learn four-part harmony and don't really get into the good stuff. Um, so, and that's kind of what I've been trying to do with the website is is kind of put all the other stuff to the side, and just get to the good stuff, you know. Hmm. Well, I guess in that spirit. I I could pull any blog post of yours up and we could probably talk for like an hour. Oh yeah, that but, sounds um, <laughs> it makes me nervous. Like I said, I <laughs> I write this stuff. Well, I I probably forget half of what I read, and then somebody asks me a question, I'm like oh, I don't know the answer. Yeah, well, actually, I did see that you had a post asking your audience what they want to learn, mm-hmm. and I was kind of curious, like. What are some of the biggest questions people ask you? Well, you know, um, uh, after people wrote back, I found that probably the most talked about one was modulation, of all things. Um, People are, I think people want to get into harmony in ways that are not talked about very often. You know, a a lot of music today is starting to cross over, especially in like film music, where you've got you know, stuff that kind of sounds like pop, you know, you've got driving rhythms, you've got ostinatos and repetitive chord progressions, but it kind of bridges over. And I think a lot of people seem to be interested in how can they keep that style, you know, keep the ostinato, keep the rhythms, kind of the Hans Zimmer sound, but have more interesting, you know, chord progressions and, and harmonies. So I've seen a lot of people ask for for that. You know, a couple of people have asked for information on melody and and how to compose it and that's always a tough one because there's just not a lot of stuff written about melody that's useful there's some theories about melody that get real deep into the way your brain perceives you know how two notes interact and how they create tension it's like it's totally useless for you if you're trying to figure out how to write a better melody because you don't normally think on the note to note level you think kind of you know bigger than that yeah so so or you know, instinctively you, yeah you think instinctively you, yeah i always worry because uh you see all over especially on the internet you see all over these comments that you can't teach music composition and i don't know why people would say that because clearly you can learn composition because there's lots of people who start off not knowing how to do something and they become great composers so there's something that happens there and I think it's a it's a kind of a 
cop out to say that oh they're just naturally talented or they they're a genius or something like that. So yeah. So the approach that I've taken um, with everything is that you have to learn theory to the point where you don't think about it anymore. Because if you're thinking about it, it's taking up just that little extra amount of brain cells that are required to create a great work, you know? Yeah. I was going to ask you about, because um, I was reading on your site that you say, or maybe this was in your podcast, that you say it takes 20 hours to become good at composing. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. What What is that 20-hour plan Oh, for people. Well, the 20-hour plan is go through my composition course. <laughs> um, no, I, I think, you know, I've spoken both about the 20-hour thing and the 10,000-hour thing. And I'm, I'm sure by now everybody has heard about the 10,000 hours it takes to become a master of something. And, and that can probably stop people in their tracks right there. It's like, oh, I'm never going to reach 10,000 hours with this. But there was another book that came out, and I can't actually remember the title off the top of my head, um, but I heard the guy interviewed in, a, in another podcast, and he was saying that you can really learn a subject better than most people will ever learn it in the first 20 hours. And it really is true if you sit down and you focus and you have deliberate practice on what you're doing, it doesn't take that long to you know, understand all the chords in a scale and to understand, you know, simple diatonic harmony and some simple formal, you know, structures to where you can write a decent piece of music better than, you know, 99% of the entire planet has ever even tried. I mean, they're they're probably not even going to get to that point. So that's kind of, I was trying to show people that you don't have to be focused on the 10,000 hours. You just focus on the next 20 hours. Um, yeah, you know, I I don't know if that that's, answered the question. I guess yeah, the, no, the plan would be, you know, at least learn how to read music first because I, I think that's just key uh, if you want to create anything more than just a song with chords, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say learn how functional harmony works uh, because that's something that that once you understand how to create a chord progression and how to add some, you know, I don't know, chromatic spice to the chord progression you can really create a lot of cool different chord progressions uh and then from there just just you know practice yeah and i feel like one of the most important things i learned in college in music classes was oral skills being able Mm -hmm. to listen to something and be able to notate what that is like that's pretty huge so you can when you do have a melody idea you don't necessarily need to be at a keyboard and trying to figure out what those notes are yeah definitely that's something that i i definitely preach i don't know if i practice (laughs) enough i used to do it a lot more when i was young just because i didn't have imslp.org and i didn't have every score i could ever want on the internet with analysis and and everything you know you're kind of forced into it's like oh what what notes are they playing (laughs) Mm -hmm. so and the first thing i ever transcribed and really like tried to write it down was it was from the Jurassic Park uh, Lost World video game on PlayStation 1 <laughs> and this it was like Michael Giacchino's first score for a game it was like the first oh, real cool. recorded orchestra for a game I was just blown away I was like ah this is amazing 
So I sat down and I tried to figure out the trumpet melody when uh, it's the last level you're escaping from the T-Rex. It was kind of a big deal. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Well, going back to melodies, um, maybe we could talk about what are some of your ideas about what makes a good melody? Yeah, well, you know, if I were to say generally what I find good about melodies is there seems to be a logic to what's going on in the melody. There's a clear development of motives. You know, you're repeating motives, but maybe you're varying them. Um, there's a clear goal for the melody. You know, there's there's a point where you're reaching a climax. There's a point where you are coming to a rest, and it's very clearly that that is the point of rest. It's not, you know, by accident. Um, you know, there's there's lots of little techniques that I like to practice on my own, um, trying to shape the melody in specific ways. Uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll start with a really simple melody that just outlines chords, and then I'll embellish it from there because I can shape the arc of the melody and I can figure out how is this melody building tension and how is it going to release tension in a much easier way when I'm only looking at eight notes, you know, over an entire theme versus if I'm looking at 30 notes and all these, you know, turns and all these embellishments. And I found that that helps me a lot when I start simple. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was reading in your blog post about melody that you kind of look for the thirds and the sevenths scale degrees in yeah. the melodies. Now, why is that? Well, the, uh, you know, in most music, you want to hear complete chords. And a lot of times the melody should be outlining what the the nature of the harmony is. And the best way to get, you know, to understand what the harmony is is through the third and the seventh. So obviously the third will tell you if it's a major or a minor chord. And then the seventh, um, if you're using, you know, seventh chords, I mean, if you're just using triads, then obviously it's not as important. But if you're using seventh chords, then the seventh will tell you if it's a major seventh or a dominant seventh. And uh, a lot of times progressions are based off of these, you know, sevenths trading. Uh, anytime you've got a root movement of a um, an ascending fourth or a descending fifth, so G to C, you know, C to F, um, you've got a trade. So the seventh will become the third of the next chord, and the third will become the seventh of the next chord. Um, I know this is kind of hard to imagine in your mind if you're not well, too familiar can... with notation and theory. Yeah, maybe we can pop in some little musical examples. Yes, we can do that. <laughs> With the, the magic um, click of the button right now. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, anyways. Um, but, yeah, on the modulation subject, like I feel like the go-to modulation I always do is just adding, um, like let's say you're in the key of C, adding a B flat which lowers the seventh scale degree mm-hmm. and then that makes you want to lead to F I kind of want to break myself of that habit but it is a really common way to modulate oh yeah well <clears throat> and modulation is is 
such a powerful tool. In fact, I just read an article, which uh, we can, I don't know if you post in the show notes, yeah. uh, for the real deep theory buffs, but it's about how um, cadences and modulation is used in Hollywood. And uh, they go over a bunch of old scores and a bunch of John Williams, who I'm a huge John Williams fan. <clears throat> but getting back to your um, your thing there, so you've heard the term pivot chord modulation? Uh, a long time ago, probably, but I kind of forgot what that is. Okay, so the best way to plan out a modulation is to plan where you're going to go to first. So in your case, you're going from C to F. Uh, that's a pretty simple one because the way you confirm that F key is by having a cadence in that key. So in the case of F, it's C7 to F is a traditional cadence. Because you're already in C major, it's a really easy jump. You know, All you got to do is add that B flat, and all of a sudden you're, you're no longer in the one chord of C major, you're in the five chord of F major. And if you sit down and you think about, oh, I want to go to a different key first, then it allows you to, to, you know, have that in your pocket beforehand. So you could write it out beforehand, you know. Let's say that you want to go from C major to E minor. E minor, you, you know you're going to have to have the E minor chord in there. And you know you're going to have to have the five chord of E minor, which is a B7 chord. And that's how you confirm it. The question is, how do you get to that B7 chord in a smooth way? And that's through something called a pivot chord. And a pivot chord is shared between the two keys. So if you look at a C major scale and you, you, know, you build all the triads on top of it, you've got uh, C major, D minor, E minor, F major, G major, A minor, and B diminished. If you look at the E minor scale... You've got an E minor. So right now, we can see that E minor is shared between the two. You've got an F sharp diminished. Um, that's not shared between the two. You've got a G major, so that's shared between the two. You've got an A minor as the fourth. That's also shared between the two. Um, you've got the B7, which we know we got to use anyway. Uh, you've got a C major as the, uh, the major six. And then you've got a um, D, where was I? D sharp diminished. So if you look at the, all the chords that are shared between the two, all of those could be used as a pivot chord. Whenever you're doing a pivot chord modulation, though, and assuming that you don't want it to sound harsh or anything like that, you also want to make sure that you are uh, staying within the realm of functional harmony. So a lot of times, if you want to go to E minor, a great chord to do that is A minor, because A minor is the four chord in, in E minor, and it's also the sixth chord. So you can go from C to A minor, which is a normal functional progression, and then from A minor to B7, which would be a 4, 5, and then to E minor, which would be a 1. So I know that was kind of a deep theory, you know, ex that's, escapade that's, there, but that's, that's kind of how it works. That's what you got to be thinking of. And the thing is, you don't have to think of that in the moment. And that's why I love to practice theory and think about theory is because I've got that in the bag. I know that I can go from a, you know, C to A minor to B7 to E minor to modulate. Yeah. 
So in that example, when you go from C major to A minor, then to B major, how do you make it so that B major is still not jarring to people? Well, with how it's... You, with the melody or... Yeah, I mean, you can uh, you can always massage things, you know, with the melody. Um, you can... You want to make sure that your voice leading is as smooth as possible. Um, but by nature of it being a dominant chord, dominant chords tend to hold up and and not be as jarring as, you know, some other random chord. Um, simply because we're used to hearing a dominant chord lead to a tonic chord. So a lot of times you'll hear in music um, applied dominance. Basically, people just will throw in a dominant chord leading to a tonic or imagining that chord as a tonic. So, like, let's say your progression is C to D minor to G7 to C, right? That's all C major. But you could easily throw between the C and the D minor an A7, which would be the dominant chord of D minor. And it's not really going to sound that jarring. You know, you could throw in, after the D minor, a D7, And it's not going to sound that jarring because it leads to a G chord. Yeah. So that's why applied dominance and pivot chord modulations are really useful because you can get away with a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's it's relatively easy to learn them too. I mean, you just got to pick two scales and find if they're shared chords. And then whatever that second key is, find the dominant and there mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> yeah. And, okay, going back to the original example. Mm-hmm trying to get from C to E minor, C to A minor, and then to B major. I was just thinking one other thing that could make it less jarring is if you kept A in the bass and then played B major on top of that. Like, so that the A in the bass is the seventh of that. Yeah. I That's just, I don't know how that would sound but i imagine well it would sound it would sound good as long as you then resolve that a down, down to, to i would say a g so yeah. then you're now in a one six chord the e minor in first inversion mm. so part of it is the baseline oh you want the baseline to be smooth too it doesn't always have to jump around to the roots right um yeah, you've got that shared note, so you could have that A in the melody as well. You know, you could keep that as the seventh, and then the melody goes A over the A minor, holds the A over the B7 chord, and then goes down to the G for the E minor chord. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of ways to massage it and make it, you know, as smooth as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. So, And that's just pivot chord modulations. I mean, there's all sorts of... There's enharmonic modulations, there's common tone modulations, and they've all got their own flavors and common uses and stuff. And then sometimes, I mean, you do want just a jarring, uh, a jarring modulation. One of the, that article that I talked about with the kind of the Hollywood cadences and all these kind of tools that are used, John Williams, for instance, he'll, when he wants to create a feeling of wonder and awe, he'll do a cadence in one key you know, it'll, it would be 
D minor 7 to G7, and then he'll hit a B-flat major chord, or he'll hit an E major chord or something like that, just out of nowhere. And it a lot of it is how he orchestrates it that smooths it over, but it's it's out of nowhere, and it's still, you know, it creates this, like, oh, what was that kind of feeling? So, so there's always a time for, for different things. Um, yeah. It, you just want to make sure that you can master them all. Yeah. And so when you were talking about voice leading, helping make transitions smoother, um, for people who don't know what you mean by that, what do you mean by that? <laughs> okay, yeah, so... <laughs> When you're talking about voice leading, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make it as smooth as possible between you, the notes move as smooth as possible between two chords. So, and the voice leading is basically how much distance does each note travel to get to the next chord. So, let's say that you're going from C to F, right? So, you've got C, E, and G. If you wanted smooth voice leading, uh, you would just take that G and you would raise it to an A and you would take that E and raise it to an F. Now you've got C, F, and A, which is an an F chord. Now it gets a little bit more complicated when you start having four voices and there's all these rules about doubling and, you know, parallel fifths and parallel octaves. And, you know, a lot of that is, it's important, but it's not really that important. Uh, My kind of rule of thumb is try to make each voice move in the shortest amount of distance possible and if it sounds good keep it make sure you've got a third in the chord you know sometimes a chord can sound fine if you've got uh let's say it's a c chord you've got the root tripled you could have three c's in the chord as long as you got that e it can still sound okay but if you've got a C, a G, and a C and a G or three c's and a G it won't sound like a c chord it'll sound like you know, open fifths. So that's kind of my rule of thumb on on voice leading. Just if it sounds good, keep it. Don't worry too much about parallel fifths and octaves because they don't really matter that much. Although yeah. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble from every theory teacher out there. Music theory cops are going <laughs> to yeah. get you. Those guys uh, are brutal. <laughs> so um, I guess I would like to talk a little bit about your composing in sonata form ebook yeah um, you said that's been pretty successful and i'm just curious uh what your strategy is in that yeah that you teach people yeah so i um i wrote that it was about two years ago now and when i started i you know i knew i wanted to create an ebook and I always kind of had this question in my mind about sonata form because I'd composed a lot of short pieces, but I, I would find that I would always trip up and not really know how to finish or create a longer piece, you know, four or five minutes long. And I started looking a lot into uh, classical form. And in particular, I read a book by William Kaplan called Classical Form, of all things. And um, it really opened my eyes to how powerful musical form is in terms of, you know, the kinds of devices you can use and the kind of expectations you can create just through these formal elements. But what I found reading the book was that it's really geared for theorists. It's geared for people who are analyzing 
you know, Bach and Mozart and Beethoven, well, not really Bach, Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn. And what I wanted to do was create something that just took you step-by-step through a possible sonata form. So there's lots of options, and this is kind of what I go over in the book, is that you, as a composer, what you're doing is you're really making choices every bar that you go through. You've got to decide, you know, the time signature. You've got to decide the key signature. You've got to decide, you know, the tempo and what kind of accompaniment you've got. And you make a lot of choices at the beginning, and as you go along, you start to limit the amount of choices you have, but you still have choices. You know, when you write a theme, you can decide that that main theme is is going to modulate or it's going to stay in the same key. And uh, how you make that choice, it will decide how the next part of your piece goes. So what I did in the book is I, I said, okay, I'm just going to take an established sonata form, you know, and I'm going to analyze it in the book, and I'm going to compose my own as I go along, and I'm going to walk people through the whole process. And I split it up into, you know, as simple as I could make it, you know, each part. Um, and what I do is I go through Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 1, It's a really famous sonata of his, and the the theme is used in a lot of form books because it's a very clear, easy-to-understand theme. Um, and I just go through step-by-step. Step. I say this is what he does for his first two bars, which is a basic idea. So now you go off and you compose a basic idea with this in mind. This is what I did. And then I say this is how he repeats his basic idea. So now you repeat it with that in mind. And this is how he composes the basic idea to his subordinate theme. And then this is how he connects them with a transition. And I, I go every step of the way trying to say, you know, all, all you're doing is you're trying to get to the next point. And when you do it like that, all of a sudden this piece that's four minutes is not overwhelming in the way that it would have been because you understand, oh, well, this is where it's repeated. This is where he's coming up with new material. This is where he's putting in a sequence and, and taking that original idea and repeating it 10 times in different chord progressions and stuff. So, and I, you know, I think it's been pretty successful. I actually, I had somebody email me today a piece that they wrote. So I'm going to put it up on my site nice. so as I can kind of clean it up a little bit. Though. Nice. So you took the Beethoven piano sonata number one and you made the Brantingham piano sonata number one. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> So, I always feel weird saying that, like, this is Brantingham number one. You know? So we know the form of the piece is similar, but how does it differ from the Beethoven Piano Sonata? Well, you know, I made the decision at the beginning that I was going to choose a different key signature, which I, he's, his is in F minor and mine's in B minor. And I also made the decision that I was going to just generally follow his ideas, but not follow them exactly. Um, there's a 
a famous quote from Haydn, and I'm just going to paraphrase it here, but basically he's just saying a, a great way to learn composition is to copy everything from a composition uh, from a great composer and just change the details, just change the melody and stuff. That's not quite what I did. I, you know, I don't follow his modulation plan. I don't, I don't go to the same key areas throughout the whole piece. But generally, I follow his plan. So I've got a, a main theme that's a sentence. And these are all classical form terms. If you're curious, you can go to my website and read all about them. But I have a main theme that's a sentence. I have a transition. You know, I use a, a sequence in my transition. Like, he uses a sequence, but it's not exactly the same. I've got a subordinate theme that is considered a theme-like unit. It's not a tight-knit sentence or period or anything like that. It's kind of extended in points. Not the same way he does it, but similar ways. And the whole goal, I'm not, you know, I'm not under the impression that this is a masterpiece or that this is something that somebody's just going to be listening to in their car, you know, driving home from work, although I'm sure it's happened maybe once. But um, I probably, you know, I've listened to it more than anyone else. (laughs) But, uh, But the goal is that you absorb the lessons through osmosis because we obviously, we don't have Beethoven coming down and saying, this is how you compose a theme. This is how you compose a transition. And in fact, if there are quotes by Beethoven, they're probably not that helpful because a lot of times great composers don't analyze what they do themselves. They just do it. You know, they've, they've been taught through great teachers and they've been exposed to a lot of music and transcribed and copied a lot of music. Um, but then when they try to explain it to people, they're like, um, I don't know, the ideas just come out of nowhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. When in reality, they've absorbed so much that it's become natural for them to do these things that are elusive for other people. Um, so the goal of that piece for me was to just write something in sonata form because I'd never done it. It was to write something that was long. It was to create a development section where I had to you know, go through several key areas within a short amount of time and then, you know, bring back the original material in a new way. It was, it was a developmental piece. It's, it's a practice piece. It's not, it's not for real, but it is. I mean, it's, it's really a piece, but it's not when you go in with that mindset of I'm just practicing and you kind of release yourself. You're like, if it sucks, then it's okay. Cause nobody will ever have to see it again. If it's okay, it's okay. If it sucks in 10 years, I've got an excuse. It's like, oh, I can't believe I wrote that. That was terrible. I was just learning, you know? So mm-hmm. that's that's the idea behind it. Yeah. I, I think that's a great idea. And because I think that's one of the major questions that people have, myself included sometimes, is once you have the initial idea that you really like, how do you extend it in a way that's interesting and yeah (laughs) yeah no it's 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 tough for anybody it really is and if you've got an idea of kind of what you want to sound like you know my recommendation is grab a piece of music that you really you really enjoy or you know from a composer that you really want to emulate and take the time and you know go through analyze his music or her music and then copy it not exactly, but copy how they're doing their things. And actually, you know, it's probably if you're a new composer and you don't have a lot of experience with things like modulation and, you know, more tricky concepts, 
to copy much more closely. So if I were to do it again, I probably would have gone through and copied exactly how he modulated from one key to another because he does it in such a smooth, musical way that once you copy that once, it's it's ingrained in you, and it'll come out in another situation. I may not be writing piano sonata. In fact, I'll probably never write a piano sonata for a movie or for TV or arranging for a group or anything like that, but I sure will probably use one of the modulations that he uses because they're handy, they're useful, and they sound good. And they're, if you've got that stuff you know, in your bag, like I said earlier, then it just separates you that much more from other composers. Yeah. And, you know, not that I'm trying to be too competitive with other composers, but, you know, it's, it's a tough world out there, and, and the more you know, the, the better you'll be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you are in the midst of film scoring classes right now. Yes, uh, I am. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what you've learned so far? Yeah, so I've uh, I've started the film scoring certificate program at the UCLA Extension School here in uh, in LA, and um, I've just finished up. Really, it's kind of the prerequisite summer semester. So I've had a blast doing it. The more heavy stuff starts up uh, next week. Actually, is our classes start for the fall semester. So uh, up until now, I've just I've I took the Harmony. Uh, two class, which is 20th century harmony, which has always been a weakness of mine. I've always been a, you know, I listen to Beethoven and I listen to Mozart and I listen to at Mahler and Ravel is about as far as I get with my casual listening. So I've always been kind of weaker on that side. So that's that was a great course. And I learned all about, you know, atonality and serialism and tone clusters and uh, minimalism and stuff that I haven't really I've you know tried once or twice, but I always felt like I was not allowed to do it because nobody ever taught me, so I never I never had permission to write an atonal piece because I always felt I'm just hitting random notes. But now that I'm hitting random notes and I've had permission, uh, it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then also orchestration uh, was a great class. We got to record twice with uh, studio players. And these guys are just the best musicians in the world. I'm just blown away. In fact, I went to the uh, the Hollywood Bowl and I saw the L.A. Phil playing John Williams music, and the trumpet player that recorded on our session there was playing in the L.A. Phil. So, <laughs> awesome. Um, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one was a music notation class, uh, which is kind of like an in-depth Sibelius class. Uh, but all of them have been just great. And you know, finally being around other composers and not just trapped in my room talking to people on the internet i feel yeah. like i feel like i'm really in it you know <laughs> yeah that's cool speaking of your film scoring you were part of the composer quest film scoring challenge this summer mm-hmm. and i really liked your piece i thought it turned out great for um the animation maybe you could describe what the animation was by your partner beth yeah, so I had um, <clears throat> Hansel and Gretel Go to the Birds by Beth Peloff. And I remember uh, we we had talked on the phone a couple times, and I had seen some of her animations, but I wasn't sure, you know, she, she hadn't really told me what it was going to be about or anything. And uh, when I got it, there was no dialogue, there's no sound effects, and it's it's basically you got to kind of make up the story in your mind about what are they doing. They're going through the woods... 
There's like this old grandma figure at the beginning that kind of points to the the woods and says go, and then they walk out. They're dropping their you know the breadcrumbs. In the woods, the the birds come and they eat their breadcrumbs, and then they poop them out. <laughs> they decide to follow the poop trail, and it leads them to some magical castle. It was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I was expecting, oh, this is going to be a you know, a film. I got to really kind of follow what the director wants, and it, you know, it was she was very easygoing, and she kind of just gave it to me and left it up to me. So yeah, uh, it was it was fun. Yeah. I, tr- I treated it like it was this three act thing. You know, kind of they're starting off in east. I don't know. I use a saxophone for that. I don't know yeah. if that's really Eastern European. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's one part in there that I really like at the beginning. I don't know. There's something you do with the chords and the melody. Mhm. Yeah, so um. I had the the first the first time you hear the melody is the uh saxophone playing solo. And then after that you have I think it was was it saxophone, flute, clarinet and bassoon. Was that the instrumentation? Something like that. Something like that. And they're they're just playing basically four-part harmony. And, uh, you know, I tried to use some cool sound in seventh chords and things like that, kind of change it up a little bit. And, in fact, a story from the film scoring program I, I took the score before i sent it off to you to my orchestration teacher robert drasnan who has got a long long history in the movie business and i showed it to him and he you know he basically pointed out you know i was doubling this melody at the beginning and how it wouldn't wouldn't sound very good and uh, later on in the class he he said one of my favorite i think it's the favorite piece of advice i've had in the course so far he said doubling is for cowards he said it because everybody in the class always wanted to double their melodies. Like, how do I how do I double with flute, violin, or how do I double this? Is like, don't double anything if it's a melody. Just leave it alone. Single instrument can be much more expressive on the melody. So, so mm. nonetheless, I I made it solo saxophone right there at the beginning, and and I think it really worked out a lot better. Um, and then I added the harmony. So, so yeah, that's basically what I did there. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And I also like the sound hit on the poop falling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I tried to I tried to time it up just right for the tuba to really <laughs> blast it. <laughs> so and then I, I did the little nod at the end to composer quest. Yes, I liked that part. 
Yeah, it's great hearing that orchestrated. Yeah, no, I I really like that theme. I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, ooh, what was that? Because <laughs> you, he's building up, and then all of a sudden it drops to pianissimo, and you hear the harp kind of going up. <laughs> it's like very classy, very classy. Yeah. I don't even know what that chord progression is. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually a flat, a flat six. So once again, if we go to C major, which is everybody's friend for explaining music theory, it would be an A flat major chord to a B flat major chord to a C major chord. So it's a flat six, flat seven, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So nice. you hear it a lot. I, I mean, think... it's, it's common. Da, 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 da. Kind of Mario Brothers kind of thing. Yeah. You know where I got that? Is from the original Composer Quest theme that my friend Mitch wrote in episode one. Okay. So I'm pretty yeah, sure that's how he ended his uh, original song. Going back into the the history of Composer Quest. Yeah. Anyways, I was going to ask you, what do you think is the best piece you've written? Ooh. um, You know, that's a a tough one. I don't know. I recently wrote a duet for clarinet and bass clarinet that I really enjoyed. There is one piece, uh, it was a piece for piano and viola, and technically it's a 12-tone piece, but I did this, uh, you know, this row, this 12-tone row, in such a way that if you hold notes over, it creates some harmony. It was after listening to, I don't know if you've ever heard Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Pert. 
Um, mm. I don't know. It, I don't think so. If anybody saw the trailer to Gravity, it was in the trailer to Gravity. It's that kind of slow piano sound with a violin underneath. It's just like this kind of really haunting, beautiful piece. And I'd been listening to that a lot. I was like, oh, I kind of want to compose something like that. So I wrote this piece, and I don't know, something about it. It was just, I was restricted by these tone rows, but the way that they came together, it created these really interesting harmonies. And I kind of want to go back and analyze what exactly is happening in the piece, because it's like part of me doesn't really know exactly where I really liked it, you know, what harmony is being created there so that I can take that and, and run with it. I had kind of a thought one time when I was listening to, I think it was a Schoenberg piece, Mm -hmm. 12-tone row piece, Um, and I started to get this sense, after listening to it for a while, you get kind of used to the sounds, I guess. Yeah. Um, And what was cool to me is, even though it seems very random at first, it's like... There were so many notes um, played on piano that I started hearing melodies within that. Mm-hmm. Like like it was just a huge swath of notes, mm-hmm. and you kind of pick out what you think is the most interesting line. Yeah. And I don't know if that was any sort of intention of his, but... Yeah, you know, it in the early days of um, atonality they did uh, free atonality so they were just and and when I say they I mean it was Schoenberg it was Albenberg it was um, I can't think of the other guys names he had a couple followers that that were kind of the big guys right and they did this free atonality where they were trying not to you know repeat a note too often or too soon after playing that note, trying to get all 12 tones. But it wasn't completely, you know, serialistic like they had in their later days. So you do get these kind of repeated ideas and you get these kind of melding of things where you can start to hear a melody in there. Uh, Later, in his later compositions where he really gets serialistic and says, oh, I'm not going to repeat a note until I've played all 12 notes, it gets a little bit more tricky. And then obviously people take that and run with it all over the place and become very mathematical in their composing. But yeah, it's definitely, it's something that I would recommend for every composer is to at least a couple times write an atonal piece, write a serial piece, you know, a free atonal piece, a serial piece, write something using tone clusters, write a minimalist piece, write something that is just way out there uh, because one, you know, it's just kind of refreshing. If you've been writing the same thing over and over again, you know, when you've been doing bump, 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 kind of waltzes all the time, it just, you're like, ah, I just feel so stagnant with this. So when you do something like that, coming back to the stuff that you do love is easier. But two, you, you never know what 
what kind of things that you will fall in love with. Like, uh, you know, I had never really given much thought to tone clusters and stuff, but I'm starting to fall in love with the music of Ligeti, uh, you know, because it's just he does things that are really interesting. And, and if you're not taking the time to find those out and try them out yourself, you're missing out a whole lot. And it's stuff that I think nowadays you don't get a guy who just composes purely classical music. You don't get a guy who composes purely romantic or purely atonal. Everybody's mixing everything. That's just the way things are now. So the more you can mix in, the better. Mm -hmm. And also it helps prevent against burnout. Burnout. As you had a good blog post about. Oh, yeah. 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 What do you you suggest for people who start to feel burned out? Because I thought that was a fun, kind of a funny... Kind of sad, but also funny <laughs> post. It's been a long time since I wrote that one. <laughs> like, quite, so you're not quite, burned out, right? I'm not quite Currently. burned out right now. That's I'm, good. I'm actually feeling good. I think part of that is is composing in different styles. I mean, over the last three months, it, the burnout stuff for me happened when I was really, I think, pushing myself to learn counterpoint and really pushing myself to learn you know, kind of the deeper levels of classical form. And and I just found that it was it was really exhausting. So, you know, as much as I love to read theory, and I, I read a lot of music theory, it's good to take a break from it and just write some music and write it in a different way, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Over the last year, uh, I've written atonal music. I've written the tone cluster stuff. I've written you know, stuff for live players that we recorded. I've written, you know, kind of pop-sounding pieces, and I've written corporate music for Audio Jungle. You know, like, stuff that I'm expecting to be on a slideshow, you know, <laughs> about the quarterly earnings, you know? Yeah. Or at least I'm hoping to be on a slideshow for the quarterly earnings. Yeah. But it's like, you got to start just doing whatever, because that's what really... When you do that stuff, then you start to realize what you do love about writing music and, you know, not take everything so seriously. Because I was taking it real seriously for a while and I was just like, ah, I just need to take a break. Um, In fact, another short film that I just did was a jazz score. It was all jazz. It was, you know, he, the, the director, he said he, it's a dark comedy and he wanted a jazz score. And then as some examples of the music he liked, he sent me a Bartok string quartet. And he sent me, um, uh, what was the other one? Oh, he sent me some stuff from Arvo Pert. And plus, he sent me some, you know, Miles Davis. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I'm going to see how I can pair these things up and, and play around with them. So it was a jazz score. It was, you know, I used tone rows in it. I used tone clusters in it. And I got to write a Dixieland piece at the end of it. So I had a blast. But just kind of reaching out and going to different styles of music that you've never done, it's just, I don't know, that's that's what's helping me with the burnout. Yeah. Um, also, I left the Army, <laughs> so that helped with burnout, because <laughs> yeah. that was a really tiring job. Uh-huh. Um, and over the last couple of months, I've left construction, too, so <laughs> that was also a really tiring job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be tough, coming back from a long day. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you work a full day and you come home and you expect yourself to be super creative and to learn new techniques at the same time, it's just a recipe for disaster. So I guess it's good to just take a a survey of 
what's your whole world like? You know, do you have a, a six month old tugging at you when you're trying to compose? And then are you putting the pressure on yourself to write a masterpiece? Because if you are, you're going to really, you know, you're going to crash and burn. Mm-hmm. Well, John, we've been talking here for an hour now. <laughs> yeah, we have. Um, and I feel like we will have to have you back on the podcast sometime again to talk yeah, some more. And, and I have to have you on my podcast, too. Yeah, let's <laughs> so do it. I can start to grill you about music theory. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> this has been good, though. I yeah. feel like uh, it's gotten my brain working a part of it that hasn't quite been worked in Is a it while. tingly inside? Yep, yep. <laughs> Maybe you should get that checked out. I don't know if that's yeah. theory. <laughs> <laughs> so, as with all my guests, I have to challenge you to write an intro theme to your podcast episode. Okay. So, yeah, compose request. See what you can do with it. I will. I accept your challenge. All right, cool. Oh, so, and then maybe I should challenge you. So then when you come to my I, podcast, oh. you need to come with an intro. Sure. And then that and intro then, will be the intro for that day. And maybe if it's good enough for all of time. Whoa. That would be, yeah. that's too much pressure. That's too much but pressure. I, I could try. I could try. Yeah. I, I'd be honored. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Cool. Well, John, uh, for people who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, you can go to my website, artofcomposing.com, and uh, you can, there's a contact page there. Um, you can always email me at, at uh, john at artofcomposing.com. Um, I also have my personal website, johnbrenningham.com, and there's no H in John. It's just J-O-N. It's short for Jonathan. Uh, it causes me a lot of pain sometimes <laughs> to try to explain that to people, but it's just J-O-N Brantingham, and Brantingham's kind of difficult to spell anyway, so artofcomposing.com is probably the easiest way. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, John. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with John Brantingham. For links to stuff John and I talked about, go to composerquest.com slash artofcomposing. And if you want to get in touch with me, email me, charlie at composerquest.com or find Composer Quest on Facebook or Twitter. I'll leave you now with the rest of John's composition, Lullaby. <laughs>